This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. When schools opened this fall, they faced an abundance of choices. They could, one, open fully in person, or two, they could let parents choose to send their school, uh, their child to school or have them receive instruction online, or three, they could teach students in school two to three days a week and have them taught online. Uh, that's, you will call that the hybrid model, or four, they could have some grade levels in person, usually the younger kids, or, and then the older kids would go online, and that's another version of the hybrid model, and, uh, or they could go entirely online, right, number five, you know, so the extremes are everybody in person, everybody online, or some kind of a hybrid in between. So what did school districts decide? to do and what factors account for the choices that they make. Uh, so a recent report issued by the American Enterprise Institute entitled Reopening in the Shadow of COVID-19 has just offered some answers to these questions. And the author of this report, Nat Melkis, a resident scholar and the deputy director of the Education Policy Program at AEI, is the author of this report. And he's here with us on the Education Exchange today. So Nat, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Glad to be here, Paul. Well, Nat, let's begin with the most basic finding. How many schools fall into each of these categories, or if you want to just divide it up into three, that's fine too. Yeah, uh, based on our data, which we uh, followed a, a, a nationally representative sample of, of 250 districts all through the spring and, and all the contortions in the spring, and we followed them uh, again uh, in the fall, we found that, uh, you know, if you want to just take it by the three categories, uh, about 41% of schools came back in person at their first week of school, uh, about uh 25% came back in, in a hybrid, and that would include sort of the A day, B day model you mentioned, or also uh, elementary is coming back in person and, and high school is either uh, hybrid or uh, remote. And then uh, just over a third of schools came back fully remote. And uh, I, I, just to be clear to your listeners, Paul, when we um, surveyed this, it wasn't on a given day or date in the uh, fall, it was um, surveying where schools began in their first week of school, which of course differed by about six or seven weeks across uh, the opening of the school year. So, um, you, so you said 250 websites, this is not all the schools in the country, but it is a representative sample, isn't it? How did you draw your sample? Yeah, it's uh, we, we drew a nationally representative proportionate to size um, sample. And uh, it's, you know, one thing you would say about it is not huge. We're just talking about 250 districts, but we got a lot of the large districts in there because it's proportionate to size. And part of the, uh, the drawing of that sample and the reason to keep it small was that we wanted to see both what was going on in the spring, but we knew that it was going to be a very volatile um, spring. So we wanted a sample that we could actually track every 10 days to two weeks. And so we, we looked um, at those same set of districts six times in the spring to just look at how the, uh, the nation's uh, landscape of remote learning and, and what that actually looked like uh, would change. And then again, we followed them up um, 
this spring or this well fall. in the in your first report last spring you you were very critical of, of the way schools responded initially you sort of said it was too little too late yeah so when we did the the summative um work looking at all those we released a report uh sort of earlier this fall called too little too late and um yeah it wasn't great you know uh, i mean there's obviously a bunch of reasons to give some some grace to school districts right it was uh something most were just not uh prepared for they had a lot of hurdles to overcome and they had to do it quickly um but from a student's perspective and from uh, you know an education researcher's perspective, where we're concerned about achievement levels and achievement gaps that we've been fighting and trying to close for for decades, clawing and scraping to get any progress. Um, from that perspective, the response of districts was sort of too little, too late, and uh, I, I think that the downstream consequences for students, particularly for students that weren't doing that great to begin with. Um, is going to be a much, uh, a, a noticeably yawning achievement gap, and, um, and and we have a lot of work to do to uh, sort of get back to square one, which wasn't really any great shakes um, by most estimations to begin with. Well, this fall you're you're a little more optimistic. I read your most recent report as sort of saying, you know they learned something from the spring and they made some adjustments over the summer. The schools didn't just go to sleep or go on vacation all summer long. They really did some work. Am I right in reading the story that way? So Paul, it's a good question whether you can view this fall as sort of a glass half full or half empty. And um, I'll, I'll leave that to, to folks to do and, and, and ask you to sort of keep your powder dry. Um, as more information comes in. What I can say is that the schools that were remote, that came back remote this fall, did have much improved offerings compared to all the schools that were remote in the spring. But we need to take that apart a little bit. So first of all, um, you can just look at uh, all the schools in the spring how many of them were offering programs that were mostly online? And uh, from our data, it shows about 61% were offering things mostly online. Well, that's a glass half empty, right? If your mental picture is, well, school via Zoom is, uh, is a real pain and, and we don't like it. Well, 40% of uh, schools in the spring were uh, not primarily even relying on that. So that's a whole. Um, what we found in the fall is that pretty much all schools that came back remote had synchronous instruction. They had asynchronous instruction. So they were doing school by Zoom or Google Meet. They were managing their content on uh, Google Classroom or some other similar platform. Um, so that's sort of a low bar. And I'm glad that those remote schools are clearing it. But the two things that we need to keep in mind there are that doesn't mean the instru instruction that's going on on those remote platforms is necessarily high quality. We just know it's not mostly paper packets. What do you mean by paper packets? Yeah, I know that's in your report too, paper packets. And I said to myself, uh, help me out a little bit on that. What's a paper packet? Absolutely. So, you know, if, if you can go all the way back to late March and April, 
in the scramble to just get anything up and running for schools, a lot of schools fell back to kind of what they knew, right? Which was, well, if we have an extended break, we got to send home some, uh, some curriculum for kids to do. So let's make a packet of instructional materials that we expect students to finish sort of on their own. That's like the I ground. I got it. So how many did last spring, how many did that? The, how many, what percentage you think were in the paper packet category? Yeah, so it depends sort of on when. A lot of school districts had it on offer. And that means it wasn't their primary thing, but they had to have it as sort of a backstop because some students didn't have access to the internet or didn't have devices. Um, but as far as uh, the numbers we looked at at the, at the end of um, this spring, there were, uh, again, like I said, about 60% of districts were primarily using online platforms. About 18% of districts had a mix. So they had online platforms, but they also relied somewhat on these paper packets. And still 20% of districts were relying on, or on, on, on schools were in districts that were relying on those paper packets. So about one in five. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's pretty much gone by the fall. It is gone, but then the question is why? And one of the things we need to re uh, remember is that we were looking at 100% of districts in the spring, but in the fall, we're looking at um, what districts are using remote uh, asynchronous learning and synchronous learning if they're fully remote. So that's just about a third of schools. And so you can imagine that Part of that is that they got their act together, but the other part of it is they had the means to go remote. Districts that didn't have that means, probably the, the, the districts that were relying on packets, uh, were much more likely to say, we got to get kids back in school because we just don't have the infrastructure to go back um, fully remote and do a decent job. Well, one of the other interesting things about your analysis is that the incidence of COVID is, is pretty much unrelated to what they did do. Is it, it, at least you find some effect, but not much. Yeah, we found some effect. In other words, uh, if they had really high rates of COVID, they were much more likely to be remote, but sort of in the low rate versus medium rate categories that we were looking at, yeah, there wasn't much rhyme, rhyme or reason there. And this, we're not the only ones to find this. Um, there's a number of folks that have pointed this out. And, you know, the question is why? Well, part of it is we just don't have sort of like a normal response to this. We have no sort of um, base response that we, we would say, well, here's the level of COVID caseloads um, that should trigger a school closure. And so, yeah, people uh, and, and districts and schools are sort of all over the place. And that even carries on today, Paul. When I was looking at it, what we thought of as high caseloads um, was nothing compared to the caseloads we're experiencing right now, right? I mean, it's we're surging, and that is causing some school districts in in the monitoring we're doing now. We're seeing, yeah, some school districts are changing their status; they're moving to remote or they're moving from in person to hybrid. But um, the rhyme or reason is not clearly dictated by COVID rates. Um, yeah, and of course it's hard to interpret uh, the incidence of COVID too, because it's a function of how much testing you're doing and so forth. And, and the number of deaths per identified COVID case has fallen dramatically. So 
I think there's a, it, it, back in the spring, you know, if you found a COVID case, you know, you could assume that a pretty high percentage of those would, would be a serious one. Now it's much less. So it's, it's even the meaning of a case has changed over time. Yeah, it definitely has. You know, it's a fluid situation. Um, and, and I'll say, you know, I, we talk about learning loss because of the pandemic, right? Because we're, con we're concerned about kids who have foregone opportunities to learn things that they otherwise would have. But I, I like to point out that I think a lot of the, the, the biggest learning loss that we've had is that we really have not committed to the science of gathering the data that we needed over this pandemic to figure out when it really is safe to go back to schools. So we're still sort of going by gut on that. And uh, it's really been a, um, you know, we, we've just had a, fa a failure of gathering the data necessary to make the clear case of when is it safe to go back and uh, when is it not? And that's why we have districts with very different case rates um, with, uh, operating statuses that just don't seem to match. Well, what are the factors that explain why some districts decide to go totally uh, online, others decide to go hybrid, others decide to go in person? What, what are the factors that seem to explain this? So uh, first of all, let me just say that I don't have sort of uh, multivariate models of this. And for your listeners that don't care what that means, that just means that I know where there are differences, but I don't know when the differences are uh, canceling each other out, right? I, I can't say which one is driving it, but there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of differences to look at. I mean, one of them is just uh, district size. Um, schools that are in large districts are much more likely to be remote. Schools that are in medium districts are sort of in the middle. And schools in small districts are much more likely to be in person. And I'll just say that at reopening, uh, more than 60% of, of schools in large districts were fully remote compared to 10% in small districts. So that's, that's a big gap. Well, I can think about four reasons why that would be. Which, what, who, what do you think is the reason why the large districts are uh, the ones that are going online? Well, you know, there's a number of things and I, I have some gut takes, but I just don't know. I don't actually know of them. One of the, these is that they have the technological infrastructure to do that. Most of the large districts are in cities. Um, they have higher broadband access, which we've seen is an important thing. We've also seen differences um, in minority populations, in their attitudes towards going back to school, and cities are much more likely to have minor, high minority students. So uh, minority parents don't want to send their kids back to school. Is that what you're telling me? They are me? much less likely to want they, to. They're you. nervous. They're much more nervous. And Paul, for good reason. Their mortality rates with COVID, their, uh, the, the likelihood they're going to have severe cases, their transmission rates are all higher. So there's some reason behind those concerns. Um, and I think that definitely feeds uh, feeds into these decisions. The, you know, the other thing is there's this. Uh, I, it seems strange, but uh, there's a big partisan divide here, and there's a question about whether that's actually driving this or just because uh, a lot of urban places tend to be blue and a lot of rural places tend to be red, and so we see this red blue divide. But it is definitely there. I mean, if you want to look at the first week of school. Schools in blue states 
50% were remote and 15% were in person. In red and purple states, 25% about there were remote and more than half were in person. So well, that's what we, that, you know, that fits what we heard from governors around the country. You know, uh, Republican governors wanted to open the schools and Democratic governors were much more cautious. They didn't want the schools to open and uh, Florida did. So yeah. it's that, uh, only reasonable to think that you would have schools opening where the governor was supportive of the uh, policy. Yeah, and we can see that when we actually sort of look at these same states and the schools in them that go back and, and whether they have um, openings sort of in the face or staring in the teeth of their COVID rates, whether they're high or low. So we looked at how many of our schools were in districts that had what we called an ill-advised reopening. And that means they came back in person when they had high COVID rates. And then we also looked at the percentages that had cautious reopenings. They had pretty low COVID rates, but they still went back remote. And we saw stark differences across these states. Uh, so for example, the ill-advised reopening, this is sort of riskier um, uh, comparatively. 13% of schools in red states went back ill-advised and just 3% went back in, in the cautious setting, right? Like where they probably could have gone back in person. Those numbers were flipped in purple states. So uh, just 4% ill-advised and 15% were, were cautious. And 27% uh, in blue states had these cautious reopenings. So um, there's just a huge marked difference in these. And again, the, the thing to remember is, I'm not sure how much of this is causal. Blue states are dominated by cities and large districts. So there's, there's other categories at play that are important to uh, control for. But we do know this, that uh, the people who were receiving in-person instruction were more likely to be affluent and more likely to be white than those who were uh, getting remote instruction, right? Isn't there, a, isn't there a divide? And also there's a divide along the uh, if the district is a high performing or low performing uh, district in terms of student achievement, that the low performing districts are the ones that went remote or more likely to go remote. So yeah. isn't it just adding to the divide in our country? It, it absolutely is. And the differences go beyond that. So we looked at all these things separately and you know, it's hard to click down through all these uh, percentages without a PowerPoint. So, you know, I'll just say that, you know, um, high poverty uh, versus low poverty was 48% uh, remote at opening versus 28. High achieving, so that's the higher achieving, 25% remote versus 43% for low achieving. We have the same differences on, uh, uh, for, for minorities, it's even larger for minority student composition. And also in community characteristics. So if you have high broadband access, much more likely to be remote. So Nat, how about in terms of the education of the parents? Are the parents who have a better education more likely to have their kids learning in the classroom or, or online? How, how, how does that go? Yeah, so we, we've seen these things where these district characteristics differ, and, and one of them is, is not really just the parents, but it's, it's, it's a, a good proxy for it. It's the percentage 
of adults in the county, the districts in that have a college education or above. And in the spring, we saw that many uh, more of those districts with higher educated uh, families had better remote offerings. And in the fall, what we find is they're more likely to be remote. So it's uh, a pretty good sized district, about 45% in above average college educated counties were remote versus 27%. But I would say that I, I'm careful with this one, Paul, because part of this could just be that it's the urbanicity thing, right? That more folks in cities are college educated, they have higher educations, and uh, city districts are more likely to be remote. So I'm not sure exactly how the causality runs in that comparison. So, but basically you would say overall, when you look at all of these uh, differences that we, we have no reason to believe that the divide in American education narrowed in 2020. Absolutely not. I mean, again, if you look at sort of NAEP scores and that's the you know national um, assessments that everybody calls the gold standard and so forth, you don't see a lot of movement in those numbers, right? They're national numbers, they're, they're not gonna move a lot. But the movement that we actually see fairly regularly over the past decade is that lower performing students, the kids in like the 10th percentile, they're sort of going down, if anything. And this, the, the, the higher achieving students, the 90th percentile and so forth, they tend to be drifting up. So it's, it's, it's an opening achievement gap, not by, uh, necessarily by race, but just by absolute achievement. And what we've, what we're seeing from these uh, school offerings, what we're seeing from early uh, data coming out, uh, but from other researchers about test scores and so forth, is that those you know who were doing well before the pandemic are sort of holding steady, but the students on the lower end are are really getting rocked. They're 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 going to drop quickly. So I expect those sort of slowly yawning charts that you might view on NAEP scores over the past years to rapidly divide uh, the next time we get uh, high quality. If, if we get that, if we ever test students again. That's, that's right, that's right. Um, it, it, <laughs> well, it'll listen, be tough to get there, but eventually we'll get a good test and I'm pretty sure I can predict the results. So, so Nat, what's on your agenda next? You're not gonna just stop tracking this. I'm, I'm sure you have something in your in your uh, bank here that you're gonna be releasing before too long. Can you give us a hint as to what's coming? I can, I can give you a hint and it's just not baked yet. So uh, I'll, I'll leave the details scant. Uh, our, our first attempt with the Searles data was mainly focused on getting a small sample that was representative so we could track it regularly over time. And we wanted to get details about it. So that made sense. But in uh, the new year, I thought, you know what I really want is I, I want to get just the basic reopening captured and track it regularly over time for a lot of uh, school districts. And the only way to do that is not to do it with human surveying, but to try and get sort of a machine learning web scraping combination that could do that. Um, that is quite the technical challenge, and we are working uh, as hard as we can to get that up. Uh, but I hope in the uh, coming uh, weeks, hopefully, or, or if, if not months, to um, have a, a pretty robust tracker of every district that keeps track every week as, you know, COVID continues to increase and surge. And hopefully, I hope, 
uh, from my lips to God's ears, that it comes down in the fall and that we might see more and more districts coming, uh, coming back. I think that'll be interesting for educational research purposes and understanding the lay of the land. But, uh, you know, also, I, I just really want kids to get back in schools uh, as quickly as possible. Well, we all want to get back to normal. So uh, thank you for illuminating uh, the picture of American education in the midst of this pandemic, uh, Nat. And thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I have been speaking with Nat Melkus, Deputy Director of the Education Policy Program at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the recent AEI report, Reopening in the Shadow of COVID-19, Beginning the First Full Coronavirus School Year. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a new podcast on the Education Next website every Monday at noon. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange.